Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. This is part of our Craft Talk Friday edition of Charlotte Readers Podcast. We're running in November, December 2021, in which we're releasing earlier Patreon episodes, Craft Talks that I've had with uh, experienced authors. Now you may ask, what's Patreon? Well, Patreon is a place where supporters of the podcast for a few dollars a month uh, can help us help authors give voice to their written words. And in return, we provide exclusive content. There are over 100 uh, exclusive episodes available at our Patreon channel. That's patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. But for these Fridays in November, December of 2021, we're going to be providing some of our early Patreon episodes to our general listening public. Before I introduce today's author or guest, uh, just a quick reminder that you can find out everything you need to know about Charlotte Readers Podcast at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find our show notes there. You can find uh, all the episodes uh, that we've released. Uh, you can also find our community blog and a way to sign up for the book report, which we send out to you every two weeks with information about the podcast, good books, uh, doses of inspiration, that kind of thing. And uh, hey, we don't spam you because that takes way too much time. I've got one more plug, and it's a shameless one at that. This episode is also brought to you by my own books. You can find out more about my books at LandisWade.com. We've got information there about my Christmas courtroom trilogy, the individual books, and we've also bound them together in one ebook collection if you like ebooks. My next novel, titled Deadly Declarations, is coming out next year. In the first quarter of 2022, it's a mystery. We got information about that on the website as well, landisway.com. It involves the controversial and long-missing Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence. A man dies while he's writing a book about the Mech Deck, and when they find his body, the manuscript is missing. But that's enough preamble for today. I want to thank you for spending your valuable time with us. We really appreciate it. And now, let's meet the author and listen to the episode. Today I'm pleased to share an episode that I recorded uh, with Kathy Pickens. Uh, Kathy uh, is a very accomplished mystery writer and true crime writer, and uh, she's appeared on the podcast. She's also guest hosted several podcast episodes, and she's been uh, very instrumental to me uh, in looking over several of the drafts uh, of my next novel, which comes out uh, in early 2022, Deadly Declarations. So uh, thanks, Kathy, for that. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about Kathy. She is, uh, well, first of all, she's going to be talking today about uh, uh, what draws people to true crime, and she's going to share techniques for how to gather and write your own true crime stories. Uh, she is, uh, as I said, a, a very accomplished uh, mystery writer. She uh, had the series, uh, the Southern Fried series, that won the coveted 
St. Martin's Malice Domestic Award for Best Traditional Mystery. Uh, in addition to five novels, she's written Charleston Mysteries and a series of Carolina's True Crime Collections for History of Press. Uh, she's written uh, Charlotte True Crime Stories, uh, True Crime Stories of Eastern North Carolina, and her most recent was Triangle True Crime Stories. She's also uh, written a, a, a very helpful book to uh, any writers or other creators. It's called uh, Create, Developing Your Creative Process. She served as national president of Sisters in Crime on the Mystery Writers of American National Board and as a longtime professor in the McCall School of Business at Queens. So my next uh, book, Daily Declarations, uh, it's not true crime. There is some truth in the story. We explore the uh, mystery of the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence, supposedly signed May 20th, 1775, one year before the U.S. Declaration of Independence. And yet, you know, the document burned in a fire and uh, there's a lot of mystery surrounding it. So that's how I set up the mystery. As I said, not true crime, but uh, some truth in the story. Kathy was very helpful to me. Uh, she looked over the manuscript. Uh, she didn't want me to kill off everybody at the Independence Retirement Community, which is where this uh, novel is set. So that was good advice. At one point in the story, uh, the entire book club took a dive, and we thought maybe that was a little too much, so we <laughs> we drew back on that a little bit. But uh, anyway, um, I had fun writing the book. It's going to be coming out. I uh, hope you'll check it out. But uh, Kathy, as I said, a sharp eye not only for helping authors, you know, figure out how to stay on the right path, but a sharp eye for true crime, which is what we're going to be talking about today in this episode we recorded early on in the process uh, for our patrons. Now, now, in Kathy's previous life, she was the Wireman Professor of Business in the McCall School at Queen's University, a partner in a plaintiff's trial firm. We won't hold that against her. A church <laughs> organist, we certainly won't hold that against her. <laughs> and a choir director, I don't know, we might hold that against her. <laughs> but I don't get this last part, a ballroom and a clogging coach. Yes. You do that. Yes. Well, yeah, the knees are not what they used to be. <laughs> I actually thought about wondering if my wife and I should take a ballroom dancing. I so, have some suggestions for you. Yes. Oh, we'll do yeah, that. Yeah, there's some wonderful teachers We'll in do town. that later. Yeah. So Kathy uh, and I uh, often see each other over at Charlotte Litt. She's uh, teaching classes there. I take classes there. Uh, we also run at each other here in the writing community. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the things she's doing in the, in the crime world, not committing crimes, of course, but, <laughs> but reporting on them. Um, but before we get into that, uh, since this episode, Kathy, is about uh, writing true crime, we should probably start with sort of why that is a market and why so many people want to get into it and why, you know, why does it fascinate society the way that it does? Yeah, it's a good question. When I when I first started writing mysteries is when I started reading true crime. And I wanted to read, you know, Edna Buchanan, the Pulitzer Prize winning reporter for the Miami Herald, came out with a book in the late eighties. And those were the kinds of true crime books I read. But I would always sneak up on the aisle in the bookstore and kind of <laughs> peek and see if there was anybody else there because, you know, yeah. that wasn't the place you would be seeing. Right. That, that's the R-rated yeah. version of <laughs> the, the, the <laughs> yes. bookstore there. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And um, it's it's been interesting because in the last few years with podcasts, with entire television networks devoted to nothing but true crime Oh, yeah. Stories. I mean, you've got the, all kind of things. You're right. Podcasts, they're some of the most uh, – 
downloaded podcast today are these uh, true crime podcasts. True crime podcasts. Yeah. And there's a convention. It's called CrimeCon. It's put on by Oxygen Network, which has flipped to a true crime format. And uh, their last meeting in New Orleans, there was 3,500 attendees, yeah. about 80% women. Well, you can't get anything more serious than death. Well, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and, yeah. and 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 you know, with mysteries, because uh, we talked mysteries when you were on the show, and I've had other mystery writers on too, and we kind of joke about, you know, the I don't know if you call it the formula, but whatever, you know, the body on page one, right? Yeah. And yeah. that's the body in the first scene of the TV show or yeah. the Netflix series, and really, um, and we're going to talk about some tips for writing true crime in a little bit, but uh, do you know anything about the demographics for readers and listeners in this world? It is all, it is predominantly women. Really? Um, 80, at least 80%, which I think is really interesting, but I, you know, in my research I've gone back and I've seen newspaper articles where judges were scolding women for coming to trials. Lizzie Borden's trial um, an awful lot of women were there, and of course it was hot, and they had all these big voluminous dresses on, <laughs> so they're just cramming in there every day, wouldn't give up their seats to go to the bathroom, you know, it was just, um, just a, and that's not been the only tri- uh, trial like that. You know, I attended the Susan Smith trial in Union County. Um, this is the 25th anniversary this summer. Yeah, and just remind our listeners who, who Susan Smith Susan is. Susan Smith's a young woman who drowned her two little boys in a lake in Union, South Carolina, mm. 25 years ago. And, um, again, standing on the courthouse steps, it was a, it was a bunch of women. Um, you know, so the reasons for that have fascinated me. It's not a new phenomenon by any means, but we can be a little more open about it now for some reason and have a lot more media um, venues. To, to We don't have to actually go to the trial now. Do you, do you think that's because more women read than men first of all and then you you add to that this true life element to what's being read yeah but you know you would think that well i mean men read thrillers i mean they you know they're huge uh, so do women but um yes women read more but why would they read this it would seem you know that very often women are the victims and i think that's part of it it's Mm -hmm. you know can i save myself can i protect myself can i not be a victim but I think the, the overlap with mystery fiction is very strong because the predominant reason for reading that is can I solve it? Can I be the detective? Can I beat the author and figure it out before, just that little bit before the author does? So I'm mm-hmm. satisfied with it, but I'm also smart. So it's an intellectual puzzle. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes I, you might just, I mean, maybe you don't want to solve it. You just want to kind of watch what happens you know, watch, watch and just what kind happens. of relax and see where the mystery well, I don't know. I, goes I, I, got, I, got, I had some yeah. pretty threatening readers. I'll beat you this time. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I got kind of wild. <laughs> I, I think I've told this story before. John Hart wrote a book, and he was at a book signing. And, and uh, maybe you told me the story. I don't know who told no. me the story, but it was uh, a woman came up to him and said, uh, well, I knew on page 150 who'd done it. <laughs> <laughs> and and he, he said he writes just kind of stream of consciousness. He said, well, ma'am, at that point, I did not know who it <laughs> So you're smarter than I. <laughs> you're smarter than a best-selling author. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so so some of the questions that uh, that these people ask themselves, perhaps, as to what causes them to be fascinated or what. So. Um, yeah, again, like I say, can I solve it? Can mm-hmm. I, you know, figure this out? Mm-hmm. Um, the science fascinates people. Mm-hmm. I think it's also this uh, 
my husband, I've had this conversation a lot. Um, he could travel a lot more freely and easily by himself than I found that I could, mm-hmm. um, especially when I was younger. There's just things he didn't think about because he was a guy mm-hmm. that, you know, mm-hmm. women have to think about. Right, exactly. And I think the one that, had, uh, that we never talk about, but I've certainly run across people that I'm close enough to that we've had that conversation is, am I capable of that myself? Is there some little part inside of me that could go over the edge? Or the corollary to that is, could I recognize it in someone I know? Because, of course, most crime is committed, personal crime is committed by people we know. The thought that just came into my head when you said that was thinking of myself back in the days when I was in college and I was playing football and the testosterone was running. You know that uh, situation here in town where the kid got in a fight in a bar and he threw a guy out the door, but the door was so close to the street that he got run over you know did you write about that no no, actually but michael gordon and i talked about that over at charlotte leah yeah Yeah, he covered the story yeah and you say you're wondering if you're capable of something well possibly yeah if i'd gotten in a fight well i call call that committing young and dumb because that's an awful lot of the kinds of crimes that we see just watch the Mm. evening news and see these young faces and people are horrified by it but what were you doing when you were 19 i know and and you know it's one thing for two people to get in a fight and wrestle around in a field and and not kill yeah, each other yeah. um, and walk away and get smarter afterwards, but you start bringing <laughs> live in, to get smarter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you bring in weapons, right? Yeah. And this, this sort of knee-jerk reactions ruins someone's life. Absolutely, right? more uh, than one. Their more their than family, one. Yeah. the True. victim's family, their Absolutely. friend's family. Uh, yeah. So, I suppose with these questions you're asking, one question that people sometimes ask and i think i've asked it before might even asked you on the podcast so you can give me an update <laughs> as to where we are now you know what are the crime stats out there are we safer is it i mean i've seen the murder rate kind of ticked up a little bit in charlotte yeah, yeah it is and it's that's sobering um i you know i, I know guys in in prison and in jail and how quickly that can happen to somebody and um it's it's very sobering to see but if you and we, you know, we're nowhere near our high watermark in Charlotte in terms of the number of murders. But um, any is too many. And mm-hmm. um, are we safer? The answer, I would say, is yes. I mean, if you look back over time, there was a time when Charlotte was, more than once, when Charlotte was the murder capital of the country. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I can remember back in the day when I was growing up, my daughter now lives in Durham. And uh Durham yes. was kind of a place you might want to skirt around. Skirt around, yeah. absolutely. Uh, and mo- but most of the time, most of us in our neighborhoods are safe. It's mm-hmm. you know folks who are engaging in activity that they shouldn't. And if you look at the statistics, are you in a bar drinking? Um, mm-hmm. And do you know the people around you? And a lot of those um, situations can be traced back to uh, environmental mm-hmm. things. You know, social situations. Yeah. You know, it could be whatever's going on in that person's you know, life yeah. that's not a life that we can even relate to. Which is sometimes what you're going to write about in these true crime yeah. stories we're going to get to in a minute. But the thing is, the murder, if you if you track it, and the Pew Research Institute has done this, young men are the ones who commit murders, and they kill other young men, and it drops off drastically, starts dropping off at age 22. Really? Guess when the male brain's judgment centers are fully formed. Oh, yeah. yeah. They start fully forming about 22, and it takes them a little longer to about age 23 to 24. And then they generally don't kill people. 
So women do all their killing before age 14 no, or something? No, no, women. <laughs> women are a lot meaner than I was going to say. Because <laughs> no. you, 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 you've covered some women who uh, poisoned people. And, North Carolina yeah. has more female serial poisoners, poisoners than right. any other state I've really? found. I wonder why. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe yeah. they maybe they got caught, but uh, it took a while. <laughs> so makes so, you wonder about the other states. I don't so, know. so you talked about we got you know you kind of went from this uh, murder mystery writing to uh, writing about true crime, and before we talk about that, uh, what were some of the kind of books you read as a as a child that kind of got you into this? Oh, yeah. I think every mystery writer yeah. I've ever talked to, especially women, are going to say Nancy, Nancy Drew, Drew yeah. Yeah, yeah, Hardy Boys, Hard, Trixie yeah. Belden, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. and uh, that's that's really consistent. So when you think about it, all those books were written by Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys, both written by a little old lady named Mildred Worth, mm. and um, <laughs> so <laughs> she she really started something. And you had to kind of build a foundation, um, you know, just the love of it in quite enough. Mm. You got to kind of go out and you know if you're interested in it do some some learning so to speak and you got some of your learning by actually engaging with law enforcement mm-hmm. personnel and prosecutors and of course you were a lawyer but not that kind of lawyer not that kind of lawyer so yeah. you what did you do to kind of immerse yourself in them? and this might be a tip ahead of a tip here but uh, <laughs> no no um <laughs> You know, people say, "Oh, well, you're a lawyer; it's easy to write mysteries." Right. But I was—they uh, think lawyers do. Yeah, we do whatever. everything. Yeah, yeah, we know everything. It's like doctors. Can, can you can you do this for <laughs> yeah, me? Yeah. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm not that. Yeah. I'm a proctologist. Yeah. I'll take care of you. you want me, yeah. No, yeah. I don't want. I Please don't want don't your show help. me your scar at the cocktail party. <laughs> I don't yeah, want maybe, your help. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but for me, I think uh, being a lawyer added to my obsessive compulsiveness. Okay. <laughs> so I had right. to get it right. I had to work really hard to do that. It's mm-hmm. impossible to get it perfect. But then I started reading, hanging out in courtrooms, talking to folks, making friends with sheriffs and investigators and medical examiners and one thing or another, and, and it sort of snowballed. You mm-hmm. know, The more people I met, the more they could introduce me to. And, um, and that was fascinating. I mean, Bill Bass, who started the body farm at the University of Tennessee, was the first to really study the rate of human decomposition so that they could identify how long a body had been dumped somewhere we didn't really know before that. Mm. Um, and his fascinating story was that um, he had been called to a graveyard to see if a body buried in an old grave um, was new because it looked new. Right. It was just fresh as a daisy. And he said, yeah, this, is, this, this hadn't been here long. Turned out that it was the body of a Confederate soldier been there for 150 years but they thought it hadn't been there but long. bill bass who is a very 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 well educated man said oh no it's fresh but the thing was he was preserved with arsenic which was very common during the civil huh. war and that just keeps you beautiful for okay. a long period of time well. <laughs> which may factor into the fact that arsenic poisoners often get caught so <laughs> the yeah. more stories you hear the more stories you find access to so yeah. Well, you you know you you really have made this shift, right? I mean, you're 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 really focused on writing true crime now, and you know we I've talked to different authors about how, um, and this might be a natural segue for you because how how fiction, in order to be really good, has to be more true than nonfiction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if you've practiced that art, right, then you can move yeah. move to the 
to the true crime writing. Yeah, but I met I, I had lunch with somebody not too long ago. She's she's a writer, and she said she was had been a reporter. Now she writes mysteries. And she said, "Why would you make that shift? It's just so much easier to make it up." <laughs> so, but, said, well, but, not but, for me. <laughs> but 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 not really, right? Because really. if you, if you're doing if you're trying to make it real, mm-hmm. emotionally real, mm-hmm. and otherwise technically technically real. Yeah. real You've got to go do those things, right? Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes it might be easier if you're a really good writer like you. Let's write about the true stuff. You so, know? Yeah. yeah, and then yeah. and then you want to avoid, on that side of the fence, you want to avoid sounding like an encyclopedia or, 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 entry. Or, right. Yeah. So, or, or news at 10. You yeah, know? exactly. Right. You've got to bring something else to it, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. Before that, though, you've been to jail, right? I have. Yeah. <laughs> Tell people, us about that. People say, why did you stop writing fiction? Yeah. I said, well, I went to jail. Yeah. And that's the truth of the matter. I left Queens. I'd been there for 30 years as a, as a senior faculty member. And um, the first thing I found myself doing is volunteering at the jail to teach them how to start their own businesses. And I met these guys, and I heard their stories, and um, I realized that it was not an intellectual puzzle for them, that this was life, and how quickly it could change, and their emotions, and how they responded to each other. And then I met a woman who's a dear friend of mine. And I was talking about the experience, and she said, she leaned over and she whispered to me at lunch, she said, my grandson's in jail, and Mm. I haven't been able to tell anybody about that. Mm. and she said it's just too much of a stigma and I didn't want to say anything and I realized that this affects more people than we might be aware of and the stories are just stunning they're funny Um, they're of course poignant they're enlightening they and for me they also help determine what in this first book for uh, for Charlotte you know what formed Charlotte what created Charlotte um, but my first, my first, um, my first murder I met when I was three. Now, okay, you have to explain that. Yeah. And I'm <laughs> standing in the car because we didn't have car seats then. I'm standing in the car outside the post office every morning, and here comes this man. And what I remember is this large woolen coat, pea coat that comes down to his knees, and he would stop and he would talk to me. And I remember him as very kind and warm. And friendly, and my mom would come out and exchange words and go in. So I remember my mom saying when I was 11, that man that used to talk to you at the post office, he murdered somebody. Mm. Turned out he'd stabbed him a lot of times, and I remember that. So I go back to my um, hometown newspaper, mm-hmm. and I asked the guy who was the editor when I was in high school, he's still there and an absolute genius for dates and stories, to help me unearth it. And he said, well, the guy who told me about him said he was mean he used to kill people's pets and he would get drunk and he would do horrible things he said you said he was nice Mm. and you only knew one side of him i did and the other people only knew one side of him. okay yeah and And he was all those sides and apparently he had gotten hurt in a railroad accident he worked on the railroad and after that he took up drinking so i did i did a um one of these patreon episodes it's up now with uh, jennifer ruff she's a USA Today best-selling author, and she she writes uh, thrillers, and she wrote one recently uh, called Pretty Little Girls about the sex trafficking trade in Charlotte, and one of the things we talked about on this Patreon uh, episode was writing villains, Mm -hmm. and the thing that she said, which I found interesting and took to heart, is that, you know, people are complex, Mm -hmm. and you have to have more than one side to a villain in order for them to be 
approachable, perhaps, or for, to, to, to try to understand. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yes, interesting. And also that there is a hero's, or it might not be a hero, the evil doer's journey, you know, <laughs> at work at the same time that the hero's journey is at work, and they collide at some point. You know. We're all the heroes of our own story. Right. Yeah. So I, I would say that's their hero's journey. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in their own mind. They, and they have their own reasons for doing things. And that's and what I, you said, and making help people understand those reasons, and that's yeah. probably part of what you do. Okay, before we start diving into a few of the tips here, your recent book you've got out is called Charlotte True Crime Stories, Notorious Cases from Fraud to Serial Killing. And we previewed some of these uh, stories uh, in the episode in Season 2 before it actually came out. Uh, in the book here, this is from uh, History Press, and you got some great uh, cover here. Talk about the cover a second. Oh, it, yeah. isn't this a cool cover? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the police car is parked down the down the street from where I live now. There's a police car on the front. <laughs> yeah, there's a police car that, that the old blue, <laughs> the old the old blue parked blue, up on the blue, sidewalk, blue and white yeah, there, and then but it, on the top right, you know, you see the biker, the biker gangs. funeral. Oh, yeah. the biker funeral was great. I think yeah. the Charlotte Observer sent every reporter they'd ever had to that funeral. Yeah, and on the back yeah. you've got a. It looks like the picture of the uh, court. Uh, is that the courthouse? That's the now. It, now it's the district attorney's office. It was oh, the, yeah, old yeah. Yeah, the old courthouse. The old courthouse. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. then a, sky, a shot of the skyline yeah. from from above. So this book here, and we, we might have a read maybe from this before we're yes. done. So tell us about the book. Um, I was work for the writers out there. I was working on something else that I was having trouble getting my hands around. And this idea came to me. <laughs> I said, what do I know really well? Oh, wait, I know this. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I queried History Press, who I'd worked with so, lots of years ago. And they said, sure, I had a contract in a week. So yeah, that's <laughs> so pretty, we, pretty, we pretty were, good stuff right I think there. that yeah. might have been a sign this was what I was supposed to do for this yeah. for this point in time anyway. When you but, get a contract within a week of your submission, <laughs> that tells you you're on the right track. <laughs> I hope so. I hope that's yeah. what that was. Uh, and, and you're going to be writing uh, – um, some other books in this same genre. The one right? for the um, for Eastern North Carolina is mm. out in May, May eleventh, okay. from right. History Press. Um, also creatively titled "True Crime Stories of Eastern North Carolina." Okay, well, you know, sometimes the title speaks for itself, right? <laughs> Very self-explanatory. Exactly, uh, yeah. and uh, then you'll start drilling down into little counties and cities. So, and well, well, I'm going to do the triad triangle area and probably the rest Kathy Pickens retirement plan yeah. here yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the, really the culmination of a misfit youth. So okay. like, right. <laughs> I don't know. All right, well, look, we're going to have to talk to him about tips, uh, or we'll be accused of some uh, switch, Fal- bait and switch stuff here. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, let's, let's start with some tips here. If you're interested in writing about crime, uh, give us some things you should be thinking about. In uh, in writing crime, I think number one, and again, I want to point out that you can write about crime in fiction. Um, use true stories in fiction as well as to write the true crime story. Right. And an awful lot of really um, good books. I mean, good heavens, Charles Dickens wrote about crime. Okay? Right, right. He was a big fan of police detectives and actually wrote the first fictional police detective. I mean, so. one, of, one of the things, and this is one of the tips, and I had, I had this episode, 47 Things That Best-Selling Author Craig Johnson Taught Me About Writing Fiction. And actually, we went to a workshop and we counted up when we were all together and turned <laughs> out to be 47. 47. There was a prime number. We said, oh, i got to write about this now. <laughs> but one of them was, you know, he says you should hunt down, 
you know, stories with a passion. He'll cut clippings out of newspapers and just stick them in a folder. Uh, and he'll use these real-life stories to, to write his mysteries that this Wyoming sheriff is going to solve. You know? Absolutely. And Where do you think the clippings on the front of this book came from? <laughs> the big filing cabinet. Is that right? So <laughs> exactly. You, you do the same exactly, thing? Okay, yeah. Cut it out. Well, and, and um, let me talk about it from a fictional standpoint okay, yeah, first. Do that. Sure. Because when I was writing fiction, every every book I've written has true stories buried in it somewhere it may be a method of murder or a method of disguising a body or something else some of them are um are kind of funny um but one that maybe that one wasn't so funny but in the very first book um there's a car that's submerged well Mm -hmm. again i had been to the susan smith trial I also knew someone who had a family member lost, and they didn't know where they were for a decade and a half, Mm -hmm. and they found them submerged in a car. And then Mm -hmm. there was a clipping from the Charlotte Observer about somebody found north of Charlotte, I think it was in Statesville, in a car that had been gone for 20-something years. They pulled it out of the water. So I'm fascinated by these cars that people disappear in. And and let me just interject. Have you seen the movie Fried Green Tomatoes? Yes. Okay. (laughs) There, there's a car in the lake, right? exactly. <laughs> and nobody knows what. I can't remember the, the guy's name, but nobody knows what happened to him, right? And then he gets pulled out years later. And so, so my my mystery fiction was intended to be funny, but I'll, I'll read you the end of the okay, first chapter. Sure. Um, they're standing there at this pond. They found a car in the bottom of it, and they're pulling it out. One of the divers flipped a hand signal to the wrecker operator, who started pulling up cable again slowly. The car inched up the ramp. Water streamed down the sides in muddy rivulets. Reddish-brown stains coated the window glass, leaving a color like someone had tried to wash away dried blood. Distinguishing between the rusty parts and the red mud was impossible. The car's rear end crept up the ramp. The onlooker's crane next extended like vultures for a better look. The front seat wasn't visible yet. As the car emerged from the water, the front end canted sharply downward, but I didn't have to move for a better look. The car's passenger obliged me by floating into view against the rear window. I'll never look at a kid's magic eight ball in the same way again. Dark water filled the car. Inside, a shape floated into view, undefined at first. Then the face, or what remained of it, drew close to the window and took form through the murk. A human head. Not exactly a head, but not quite a skull either. A waxy yellow padding outlined the cheeks, jaw, and neck. The eye holes gaped, hollow and black. Floating limply, the head tilted. The grinning teeth tapped once against the glass. Then the apparition floated back into the shapeless form in the dark. Okay, and I, you know, and I'm, I'm going to tell our listeners here that this is from the book Southern Fried. She's in the very front of the book, so we know this is all happening. It's chapter, that, one. chapter one. Chapter one, right? <laughs> chapter one. <laughs> Now, body, now, not, body not just on page one, but in a car, in, in, a, in, in a body of water. Now, how do you know what the car looks like? Well, you have to have seen what they look like when they come out, the rivulets. And mm-hmm. the, in mm-hmm. the south, the red mud would stain something. Right. And the the way the skull is shaped, water skull submerged in water, chances are it's going to form something called adipocere, sort of fatty deposits. So mm-hmm. I know a lot. That's not what's in the book, mm-hmm. okay? I just mm-hmm. describe what's there. But I do everything I can to make sure every single detail um, mm-hmm. is is right. Now, the rest of the book is mostly humorous, but most people tell me that one's not so funny. <laughs> so, no, we're but, start, starting but, off there to— Yeah, kind, kind of, yeah, yeah, gra- yeah, grab people this. But 
for me, it was important to know what that looked like mm. and to, you know, what the people were doing and how they hooked it up and where the divers were and that kind of stuff. But it wasn't important for the story. But I think writers should look for those stories that speak to them, whatever it is you're clipping out of the newspaper or whatever it is that you are intrigued by keep that because it spoke to you for some reason mm-hmm. okay so mm-hmm. all my submerged car stories came together <laughs> in one place yeah and when you're writing that work of fiction you've got a some detective i don't know who the who's the detective her in name that. is avery andrews and it, she's it, a small town lawyer small town lawyer so she's the detective um and you're you kind of telling the story through that person's mm-hmm. lens um how do you decide when you're writing true crime Whose lens to tell the story through? You know, that's a that's a good question, and it, and it varies for me. Um, and it varies for me too. Somebody says asked me about this um, book because the funny thing about the new book about Charlotte. Yeah, we're talking is, about Charlotte true crime stories yeah, now. Yeah. Everybody, everybody says, "Oh, I knew so and so," or "I lived down the street from so and so." And then the other yeah. question is, "Why didn't you write about so and so?" And my because answer, that's going to be the next. No, <laughs> <laughs> so actually, some stories are too sad to write about yeah. it's just too you know too raw too close I'm, right. I'm not in the business of embarrassing people or dragging right. things up that are not so i'm trying to write things that have been very very well covered mm-hmm. um so again whether you're writing fiction or non-fiction there's loads of resources out there and do you so we talk about point of view a lot of times in writing fiction you know i don't know in your mysteries did you use like a Third person close, or did you use a I, I first, was, person, first person? First person. Yeah. Okay, so you're in your first person yeah. protagonist head there. When you're writing true crime, are you more omniscient? Do you? It is more repertorial. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, I want to be able to uh, one put the story in a context. Mm-hmm. You know what was happening around this story and right. around this time. And Razor Girl comes to mind. Yeah. Because you, you you read Razor Girl in the podcast, and, and folks, you know, you got to go back and listen to uh, season two and, and listen a little bit of Razor Girl. Yeah. But the, re- the, the reason I keep coming back to Razor Girl, when you told that, um, you sort of are telling what's going on in the courtroom, and you shift from, you know, her with the knife around his neck and, ple- you know, explain to the officer it sort of slipped. I and, didn't know how sharp it was. Yeah. <laughs> didn't know how sharp it was. His head was hanging off. Yeah. Uh, but then you kind of work your way into the jury room in the sense that, you know, they read a couple of Bible verses. Mm-hmm. They talked about forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And then they worked their way around to finding it, to, yeah. to making a decision that, and you can finish the. Yeah, the talk, line. The, talk the holdout, the one holdout yeah. out, yeah, and, yeah. and found her not guilty. Because. Of killing her lying, cheating, bigamist <laughs> husband. <laughs> exactly. And she was a mill worker, yeah. context of mill worker, I think $15 a week. Right, but that's the yeah. humor you add to, yeah. the, to the story, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and the judge, and I'm sorry, not everybody probably finds it funny, but I find it wryly humorous that the judge, when she asked, gave her her knife back. In her bloody dress. Mm. <laughs> so. and, and to be fair, there's probably we're at a point in time in history for Razor Girl in the 20s, I think. Or, it's or, 1926, yeah. Yeah, when supposedly women were getting away with murder. Of course, that's the men's point of view. Yeah. But the men were probably domestically abusing some of these women yes. who ended up doing what they did yes. to the men. And let's, I've got their pictures in here. It was an all male jury. Oh really? Yeah. You've got the razor. They, they can't have you got women the razor on girl jokes. jury in here. <laughs> razor girl jury is in here. Okay, you got to go buy this book, listeners, because we got the razor girl jury in here, and it's all page, men. They're on page twenty-four. And all the men found are not guilty. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Okay, we, we got off track for a second. Uh, tips again. So if we're, I, I talked to you about a first tip, uh, but 
in the first tip area, you talked about something you would suggest, uh, which is maybe getting closer to understanding how these uh, crimes take place and getting a visual on what's happening. What do you warn against um, when you're writing you know, true crime? Either either using true crime stories, because I have a friend who uh, took a Charlotte case and wrote a book inspired by it. You have to be careful because people's lives are involved here, and some people don't want that dug back up and don't want that memorialized. I think the same is true, even more so, in writing nonfiction, in writing true crime. And I have to remember that there's a victim's family as well as the the perpetrator's family, and there's friends, and uh, some people don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, what's happened so I, to me the safest way is to do your search be as thorough as you can put yourself in that other person's shoes okay before you tell the story be as truthful as you possibly can be in recounting it if you're telling a, a true crime story but I also am not an investigative reporter that's not the point with these history press books so I'm only telling stories that have been covered multiple times often in nationally broadcast television right, so you're, you're not interviewing people that are involved I'm not, in, in not going to go back and dig it up that's not that's right. not the purpose of this the, what the purpose of this is to capture these stories mm-hmm. because Razor Girl would have been lost mm-hmm. except for Sheila Bumgarner who's in the Carolina room at the Mecklenburg County Library and your librarians wherever you are are a wonderful resource for stories but she came across Razor Girl in the newspaper and told the story to a journalist here in town, and then another guy wrote about it. And then, you know, I found that it's like if Sheila hadn't been aware of it, then Sheila's given me another story about a woman who poisoned herself at a bus stop. Mm-hmm. And Sheila's done incredible work on trying to find out exactly who this was and done a lot of genealogical work. Um, she's quite a genius with a taste for the macabre, I might add. But. Okay, so, so Kathy, you've got the facts of the story. You've gone and done your research. You've done, looked at the old newspaper clippings, any articles that are out there. You, if somebody's written a book about it, you might have looked at some of that. And so no, you, I might own it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, you, and you're sitting down, you've got all these facts. What decisions are you have to make in terms of how to tell this story? For me, for this, these books and these stories, it's all about story. Um, I want to get the dates and the outline of it correctly, but then I have to take a step back and personalize these people. Just the fact that a woman sliced her husband's neck because he was leaving her um, right. and had probably abused her and was a bigamist and taken her money and all this stuff. Yeah, that sounds like an encyclopedia article. Mm-hmm. But until you realize how tiny she was and how flirty and funny she was, how she attracted the best lawyers in town to defend her for free, and how the prosecutor was waving his fist in the air and saying he's going to put an end to these women getting away with murder, mm-hmm. you have to kind of put yourself in the story the same as you would in creating fiction to to breathe life into it. Who are these people? How are they responding? So how, how do you do is this Is this sort of... We hear when we think about creative nonfiction. Creative nonfiction. So you were actually trying to, in some cases, imagine mm-hmm. how, because you, you, you probably couldn't know how Razor Girl, for example, felt, uh, because not all that's reported mm-hmm. in the newspaper. So you try to put yourself in that position. To well, some at extent. least, at least, um, and it's funny you mentioned that because the, the only illustration of her is a sketch I did. Oh, really? Because <laughs> the there wasn't a good newspaper photo, okay. but, but there was a photo, but not right. one that could be reproduced. Um, but in some of the, you know, in some of the other cases, it's like, um, 
you can you can draw from the story as it was told without making up stuff wholesale mm-hmm. um, about you know what went on. Or you can ask. I often ask questions. How would this played out? How would this person feel? Why would someone? Um, do this because frankly as a fiction reader that's also what we want to know we want to be able to empathize Mm. with the characters in the story to know who they are and where they come from so Kathy do you have an example maybe that would illustrate sort of trying to get into the character's head here or the real life not here well everybody's a character right (laughs) we all are the the true people you got you got an example i do Uh, the last chapter i write about crime fighters instead of uh, crime committers Um, Mm -hmm. one is a very famous um, chief of police chief of detectives who helped break up chicago's tui gang Mm -hmm. who was a big rival of al capone in the 1930s and and it was the Charlotte, chief of police, who helped bring that gang down. Oh, wow. Okay. Let's hear it. People, people rarely know that, but right. I'll let you read the book for that one. But I also and wrote I got the book. <laughs> I bought, bought it today at Park Road Books, and I've already had you sign it's it. It's even so, been yeah. signed. Um, but the second crime fighter I write about is our current sheriff, who's Gary yeah. McFadden. And he, back in 1992, we had our most famous serial killer. I call him the serial killer who broke all the rules. Now, I didn't interview Gary McFadden. I listened to his podcast. I watched his television show. I read the news accounts at the time. I talked to people who were working at that time. And I say this, McFadden couldn't know it in 1992, but a fellow South Carolinian had just moved to town to join his mother and sister. And the man would be at the center of watershed moments in McFadden's career and the criminal history of Charlotte. In 1993, over 75% of Charlotte's record-setting number of murder victims were black. Among those victims was a growing list of young women. People later complained about how long it took police to make the connections. Angry family members said the police didn't care because the dead women were African Americans, that if white women had been killed, the police would have paid more attention. Admittedly, police were overwhelmed by the increase in homicides and lacked resources in both staffing and technology. But even with the benefit of hindsight, the links between the cases were hard to spot. Now, that's the kind of tension building that you want to draw. It mm-hmm. also sets up the fact that, um, and McFadden says later in, in multiple interviews and places, that handling this case where these angry black mamas were confronting him about why they didn't solve the, the serial killing spree mm-hmm. earlier before mm-hmm. their daughters were killed, he said it made him a better detective because he understood. And, I, you know, I don't know him personally, but watching his career, he seems to be somebody who has a real feeling for the people on both sides of mm-hmm. a crime. Mm-hmm. And I do think that's one of the things that's made him a good detective. But unless you take a step back and put it in perspective, instead of just saying in 1992, Charlotte had a serial killer, how did the detective deal with that, and mm-hmm. what was his perspective on this case, and how did that influence him for the rest of his um, career? Mm. All right, let's talk a little bit more about the technical elements of writing uh, this. Um, do you? What do you do first? Do you do you you got to go get the facts. How do you do it? Do you go to an expert? Do you go to the newspaper? Where, where do you go? Slide open the 
filing cabinet door. <laughs> Find the articles. Start, start going through the articles. I've also just an, an immense collection of books because I mean this started mm-hmm. this started for me as an obsessive compulsive drive in, in the eighties again when I read Edna Buchanan. Well, they said you shouldn't write about something unless you're obsessed about so, it. Right? I am. I am obsessed about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people think this is something kind of new, and I just kind of mm-hmm. sit there and stare and think, "Oh, well, you've known me for thirty years. You have no idea." <laughs> so, yeah. You know, so yeah. Well, uh, well, but but, um, but but for somebody that is starting to be obsessed with it, but they don't have a file cabinet full of <laughs> information yet, and they don't have all the friends that work for the police department, and they hadn't been to the jail yet. What are you suggesting that they, they do? They need to, to look for the stories that attract them. Okay. Okay, and they're everywhere. They're in the daily newspaper, on the evening news, they're on the shows they watch on TV. I would say one thing not to do. Do not watch fictional crime shows on television. Why is that? I have never, ever seen an episode of CSI. Well, then no. ha- you, <laughs> you sound like that. The, the preacher said, I, "We this book should not be in the library, <laughs> not not because I've read it, but because I know what's I know, in it." That, that was it. on that was on Philip Lewis's podcast in his book, The Bearfields, when the when the preacher was burning the books. He said, "I don't have to know what's in this book because I know from the title." What it, you know, <laughs> I, I've I've heard enough crime scene investigators uh, okay. curse the show. <laughs> So, okay. and, and I know what lawyers have to deal with with this, right. what they call the CSI effect in the courtroom, where people want, well, why didn't you bring the blue light out and look at my car <laughs> after somebody broke into it and figure out yeah. who did it? Okay. Um, so, you know, but there's also books on, in the library. And there's, so, so if you want to write about a case where there, you know, is, um, there's a dead body, well, mm-hmm. what, you know, where, how, why? Is it a rural area? Is it in a city? Um, read some things to get the stories, and you'll be surprised what you find. Um, I was attending, speaking at a conference at the at the University of Georgia, and I met a woman there named Emily Craig, who was the forensic anthropologist for the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Fascinating woman, and she studied under Bill Bass, who I just mentioned at the Body Farm. She was first a medical illustrator wicked sense of humor Hmm. well she happened to meet her soon-to-be agent at that conference on the the car ride back to the airport (laughs) so after i met her she wrote her book and she comes out with this hilarious story that she dealt with i won't go into all of it but it's the these this woman had talked her two boyfriends into killing her husband and she says here, that woman had some awesome powers of persuasion, one of the deputies told, once told me, okay. <laughs> obviously. Yeah. So then they dump him in a mine. Well, yeah. he doesn't deteriorate. He mummifies. So then they cut his head off and dispose of that. So then they say, well, they're going to blow the mine up, but they don't have any money to buy dynamite. So she says, I'll get some and uses, once again, her sexual expertise mm. to get some dynamite to blow up the thing. Well, yeah, I'm crying I'm laughing so hard by this point they they nicknamed the case Nookie for Nitro Nookie for Nitro and did, it went so, on and on and on I mean uh, it was just did you it, end up writing about that uh, yeah. yes it's in the third book uh, it's in Charlotte <laughs> no, no I, that was in Kentucky I can't go Kentucky. I can't I can't okay. wander too far afield okay. but yeah uh-huh. this whole idea that somebody's going to use sexual favors to get a stick of dynamite now I did email the fellow who was then the sheriff here in um in Mecklenburg County Chip Bailey who's also a mystery writer mm-hmm. he's happily retired to the coast in South mm-hmm. Carolina now but uh, I said, would, how many sticks would do it to blow this thing up? 
<laughs> emails back, dear Unabomber Pickens. <laughs> I checked with my friend at the ATF. Um, so, and by the way, this this email will still be available in, in Google for yeah. many years. You know, for so, many years to come yeah. if somebody's looking. Yeah. So, so again, there are people to ask questions of. I start with a story first, and I decide what I want to do with it, and then I go and ask people. And people are very generous. And I can't say, oh, well, tell me about your best case, or oh, tell me how you investigate a crime. If you say how many sticks of dynamite does it take to blow up a to blow up a house, then somebody can tell you. Okay, mm-hmm. and they're usually very generous with their time that way, and you know, <laughs> happy to do it if they know yeah. you. But remember, these things are relationships. Rem- hopefully, they know you well enough. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Well, and yeah, and and please don't just you know right. email some FBI right. agent yeah. and ask some kind of silly question. You yeah. Know? So okay. Um, other technical thoughts in terms of uh, writing? I mean, in some respects, um, you're using some of your techniques that you write uh, in fiction to do this creative nonfiction. And yeah. You and I have actually been taking a course together yeah. from, from creative nonfiction. <laughs> Maybe we should tell them what we've learned. We're, we're try- have we learned I, anything? I, I hope I have. I'm trying. Yeah. 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 Charles Israel is great, but I'm yeah. not sure I'm a good pupil. No, yeah. no he's, he's been great. He's t- been teaching this course at Charlotte that you and I are taking. But, but he talks about uh, this idea of imagination uh, being a part of writing creative nonfiction that is trying to put yourself uh, in, in the position and not having to know – hundred mm-hmm. percent necessarily what you know is in the minds of these people but learning enough about the situation that you can tell it authentically yes. is that a good is that a fair yes. statement yeah. now if you're if you're writing true crime right one of the things that'll make me throw a book against the wall really quickly is where somebody is inside the head of a killer oh and they're trying to really assume who who tells me what's going on in there. That's more of a mystery. Or makes up conversations that they couldn't possibly have been privy to. Now, if you're going to have to do that, tell me where you got the information because I'm a stickler for for detail. I would also say um, this warning again, you have to have access to people who are willing to tell their story. Mm -hmm. And that may, to be fair, mean also having access to people on the other side of the story. Mm And that can be tricky sometimes. Well, and you've had access to people on the other side of the story through your work at the jail, right? Um, yeah. yeah, in some, yeah, in some, and, and you know, I, I'll say this here now: I don't write about those guys. Right. They're yeah. to that, me that, that those are vulnerable stories. But you're helping them. I mean, they're writing. They're doing their own writing. Doing their yeah. own writing, and you're yeah. helping them with that. But yeah. you're learning about a side of their story that yeah. people may not assume yeah. or, or really understand, right? As as you quoted earlier, people just persist in being complicated. The right. People are just complex. And yeah. to to write a brushstroke about somebody involved in a, you know, road rage incident or, uh-huh. well, even a drug trafficker or, you know. Somebody, somebody was giving me a hard time about the people I was hanging out with, and it was a little long conversation. And I said, "Well, give me a murderer any day." Um, and really, inside the people that I had the hardest time understanding and that I found the most um, obscure were sex traffickers. They just didn't seem to mm-hmm. relate to other people. Now, in this book that you just had come out, Charlotte True Crime Stories, these are uh, shorter. Stories, yes. right? And yes. so, what's the average length of 
the word count for something like these? Is it um, the, the History Press has a forty-five to fifty thousand word for the count. total book. So That's for the, the total book. book. So but for the total a, book. How many stories in here? And yeah. you know, there's there's I don't know fifteen or twenty. Um, there's twelve or thirteen okay. chapters, I think. Um, so I've tried to. Um, so these are roughly four and five thousand word yeah, stories. Yeah, yeah, roughly. Yeah. yeah. And is that a? Have you found that to be a, a good length for? That seems to that seems to hit hit the mark for most and, of them, and yeah. do, does the arc of the story, again, this gets back to using your creativity because you could tell these stories any mm-hmm. possible way. Mm-hmm. When, when you're trying to tell these stories, did you use a similar arc uh, through the story or did you start at different places in different uh, stories? Wow, you're persistent with some hard questions uh, today. Yeah. Um, you know, each one was different. It's by the time I had read multiple, multiple sources mm-hmm. or watched things or, you know, dug into it, the story sort of starts telling itself. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, the way, and that's, that's purely my personal response to it. Mm-hmm. Some stories I started researching, the one in Eastern North Carolina case comes to mind. Um, whole books have been written about it. It was a turning point in um, mm-hmm. death penalty appeal in North Carolina. I just didn't like it. I didn't like the people involved, and I didn't want to tell the story. So even though it was fascinating, um, it just wasn't a story I wanted to tell. Yeah, and you've got some some great photographs in this book here. Charlotte Skyline in 1911. uh, Again, the Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, they they have archives of some postcards and and copyright um, control over some of them. Some of them I went to take. and um, but now one of my friends, and he is a friend. He, um, I sent him the book. Um, he's in prison, and somebody took it immediately and started reading it. And then they passed it to somebody else, and he said, "Well, I haven't read it yet." <laughs> I'm like, he's just passing well, around. I'm like, "Well, um, okay, yeah. I, I know you're not. You, you got other things you want to read." And um, he said, "No." He said, "They just keep taking it." And then he comes back the next time I visit. He said, "You know why they wanted the book?" And I said, "No, they wanted to see if they were in there." <laughs> Mm. He said, I just told him, none of y'all are famous enough to be loved. And you've got, you've got these sketches. Are these your sketches in here? Yes, yeah. these are my sketches. Yeah, and, and I wanted my maps. So the maps may be crazy, but I like to know where something took place. I like the so, maps. Yeah. yeah, the maps is nice. It helps you ground yourself. Uh, you look at this uh, picture on page 30. It says, Gaston Maine, Southern Charmer and Spy on Trial. You know, that's a... He he is the most famous criminal from the Charlotte area. He's actually from Concord that nobody's ever heard of. Well, I look forward to reading that story because yeah. I have not heard of him. But is he the one that's just looking over? Is that the yeah? Lawyer? He's the one that's got his got face the, toward the camera, and know? he's got his bow tie. On yeah, and, and he was he got away with murder. He rookie dude the woman that owned the Hope Diamond into thinking she could with her money she could save the Lindbergh baby. I mean stuff that you just couldn't make up. Mm. And quite the ladies' man. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I asked uh, Tommy Thompson talked to the Charlotte Writers Club one time, and I think I asked him the question, you know, why have you never chosen to write fiction? He said, because the things I write about that are true are just so much more interesting. Just so much more interesting. Yeah. yeah. Is that your feeling, you too? Yeah, re- never say never. Everything has its season, and I've got a... I've got the outline for another novel, but okay. um, for right now, this it seems to be, seems to be where I'm yeah. supposed to be because I'm really enjoying both the research and the storytelling. So before we finish and you give us some resources, I'm sort of uh, recapping here, and maybe you can help me a little bit, but I think you you talked about sort of, you know, if, if you are obsessed with this, start collecting uh, some stories that interest you. Um, do a little research. Maybe uh, don't watch that 
CSI show on TV. <laughs> Everyone loves them. But yeah. go, go to the library, maybe go to our sponsor, Charlotte yeah. Libraries, the Spangler Room, and look look up on Microfish some old mm-hmm. stories and see the they photographs. They have clippings. Oh, do they? Actual clippings. That some, and you know it was a lady because the very precise writing is clipped out and written the day you don't know. Okay, yeah. yeah. And then, uh, you know, you warn against uh, you know, certain things. We already talked about the TV, but, but also um, maybe not trying to get into the head of somebody if you don't know truly what they were thinking. Mm-hmm. But it's okay to imagine and make clear to the writer mm-hmm. that that's what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, exactly. You know, it, it might be you say something like this happened and she must have felt like, you know, that's different than saying she did yeah. feel this way or something. And then, uh, you know, you suggest, uh, as you said, collecting these stories, put them in the file cabinet. Going to the, the body farm, I, I tell you, that's a heck of a name for a place, the Isn't body it? farm. Yeah, it's right yeah. there at the football. It was right at the football stadium. <laughs> yeah, and then when you get to the technical elements, you know, borrow from your skills with fiction that is being descriptive and talking about it, but write some of the things you've seen in real life. So that scene you read today so you can visualize the water mm-hmm. dripping off. Um, it really did bring back to me that scene in Fried Green Tomatoes <laughs> where they're hauling out the, <laughs> exactly. the old— Exactly. Uh, Model T and and the guys uh, in it still. Um, so, well, I'd add one that, one okay. that we didn't talk about because yeah. I, I coach a lot of writers and yeah. I say just write it. Say, well, I don't know the police procedure. What would this investigation? What would they? How right. the interrogation go? I said, just write it. Just write. Just it. write it the way you think it would go. Yeah. Okay, and then you can clean it up later. You can right. have somebody read it. You can ask specific questions, but your instincts are going to be pretty good. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we haven't talked about is the short version versus the long version. Um, you know, I've had some authors on the show. Um, Charles Oldham wrote a book uh, called The Senator's Son, which is a down east uh, kidnapping, one of the first kidnappings in North Carolina history. Mm-hmm. At a time in history when kidnappings were just becoming a thing, before the Lindbergh baby, mm-hmm. and they didn't, have a, they didn't even have a statute no, on the yeah. books Wasn't for kidnapping. Yeah. They didn't think people would do that kind of thing. And he, and he wrote this book, but it's a very detailed, researched book. A lot, a lot of work, you know, goes into that kind of thing. Sort of a different, maybe, methodology than what you would use in one of these short pieces. Yeah, actually, I told that story um, okay, in the did. Eastern North Carolina book, and I got yeah. in touch with him because okay. I'd found the book. But I'd also found the story other places. His mm. research was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's into handwritten right. court records and things like that. But a lot of people aren't going to dive into that story in that detail. I hope they will. He mm-hmm. let me use the cover of the book as one of oh, the yeah. illustrations in the book because I hope they will if they get the flavor for this. I mean, it's a haunting cover. He's got this little boy, oh, little boy uh, Kenneth Beasley, there. who's looking at you and his eyes are so bright. And, and it was a senator, state senator's yeah. son. And, and there's, a, a, there's on, another on one about the same, about in, in not not too far away from there in, in Lumbee territory. Yeah, so y'all can listen, listeners, to that episode um, as well on Charlotte's podcast, and you'll you'll hear one of the clues, which is, uh, as I recall, Kenneth Beasley telling his mother one of the last things he said to her the last time she saw him. He said, well, those are some mighty pretty puppies, you know. Yeah, I want to so, yeah. so the question is, how do the puppies come into the, yeah. to the story? All right, we're about to wrap up here. Can you give us some uh, resources uh, for our listeners to maybe go – use um, perhaps to kind of give them some grounding here? Um, I, I was kind of brainstorming kind of, you know, my, my doorways into some stuff. One thing I recommend for podcasts, there, there's some 
that I don't recommend just because they're too flip and there's not enough mm-hmm. research. And we mm-hmm. all we all know my my OCD by now. Right. Um, <laughs> but for North Carolina uh, folks, there's something called the Long Dance, and it's an unsolved 1971 um, Lovers Lane murder. Um, near Durham. This is a book. It's a podcast, oh, it's a podcast. called The Long Dance, and okay. they've they've actually these podcasters have actually worked with the investigators who've reopened this cold case crime, and they talk to the family members. They do a great job of really doing investigative journalism um, on this still unsolved case, but they actually then present the hmm. most likely suspects. Okay. Um, my my gateway drug was Edna Buchanan, who was a um, Pulitzer Prize winning reporter for the Miami Herald. In 1987, she wrote a book on her cases called The Corpse Had a Familiar Face. And journalists would get together. Calvin Trillin wrote an article about her and said, um, you know, what, what's your favorite Edna lead? They would mm-hmm. always talk about mm-hmm. that. And hers was, now I forget his name, I think it was Mike Robinson died hungry. Mm-hmm. He had a hankering for some church's fried chicken um, the two-piece hmm. box for $2.19. Um, instead, he got oh, the three-piece box. He got three bullets. He mm. got it was a it was a fast mm. food rage incident. <laughs> you know, getting shot. Yeah. But she just um, she just is a brilliant journalist and, mm. and has great stories. Jerry Bledstow wrote some of the most detailed and and um, beautifully written true crime accounts about cases here. Skip Hollinsworth in the Texas Monthly Magazine. Um, there's other reporters there. I I had to subscribe to the Texas Monthly Magazine. They mm-hmm. just got good crime there. Um, mm-hmm. And, of course, there's textbooks and things like that. But if you want to get a flavor for whether it be short-form journalism, long-form reporting, podcasting, um, those are good good introductions. All right. Well, there was an article about you and the Charlotte people, I think, online. And uh, they asked you a question, what's something people would be surprised to know about you? In addition to talking about being an introvert, which a lot of law, you know writers are introverts, you said, "I'm a trophy-winning clogger." I am. Yeah, yeah. state dance in North Carolina. Funny thing yeah. is, I'm from South Carolina. <laughs> Can't really shag. <laughs> How'd you pull that off? <laughs> How long have you been clogging? Yeah. I, since I was a little kid. Yeah. Does your husband clog? No, yeah. Uh, yeah. he's no. from Oklahoma. They don't. Okay. That's not a thing. And you have a trophy case for this. Uh, <laughs> little ribbon you got when you were 14 for, for clogging? No. <laughs> no, no, no. no. We're going to have a story about a clogger sometime? No, uh, uh-huh. my knees hurt too much now. Uh, I, I, I can see a, a clogger getting a bit yeah. jealous of another clogger and maybe take well, him you out. Know, those shoes are wicked. Those tap shoes are wicked. Yeah. Right. Well, Kathy, I want to thank you for, uh, for being on the show today. It's always a pleasure to talk with you about anything but to talk about uh, something you're passionate about is even better so thanks so much for participating thank you this was great fun yeah.